Wow. Can't believe we're at Genesis chapter 50. Have you ever, um, you ever read a book? <laughs> Stop there. <laughs> you ever read a book? Never. But have you ever read a book like series? Like maybe you're reading through a series like book one, book two, book three, book four, or, or maybe watched a television series. Maybe um, you can relate to that better. I don't know. But you're, you're getting to the end of the series. You can see it coming. You know there's only one book left. You know there's only one episode left. And you're genuinely just sad, right? You don't want this book series to end because you have, you've become invested. You know the, the characters and you feel like you can relate to them and, and you're not ready to be done getting to know them, right? That's kind of how I feel this morning as we get to the end of Genesis chapter 50 here the life of Joseph. Joseph is definitely one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture, and I am genuinely a little sad to see this series come to a close. Um, I look forward to one day meeting Joseph, and he can tell me more. You know, tell me more. Tell me what, what wasn't written. Um, and he said, that wasn't for you to know, and, and otherwise it would have been written. And so... Um, but no, I'm excited uh, to, to meet Joseph one day. So many great stories in Scripture. Um, but I am encouraged by this. As we finish today in the life of Joseph, um, we have two options. I'll give you this. Here's the option. Let's go back and do it again. Uh, we can do it again. We'll just start all over again and go back through it again. Um, no, we, we probably, probably won't do that. Someday, maybe. But no, actually, in two weeks... In two weeks, we're going to start a new series, and that series, I mean, if you think Joseph, you know, sets the bar pretty high, you're going to like this next series, because the next series we're going to be doing is we're going to look at the gospel of Luke, which means we're not going to be looking at the life of Joseph, we're going to be looking at the life of Jesus, and I think that uh, Jesus sets a pretty good high bar, don't you think? <laughs> So I think, I think we're in for a great, a great time as we work through the life of Christ. Really looking forward to starting that in a couple of weeks. So, all right. Well, this morning, we are at the final chapter. It's the final chapter in, in the book of Genesis. It's the final chapter in the story of Joseph's life. And in the first week of our series, I told you that in this study of Joseph's life, we were going to read about a man who remained faithful to God. You agree with that? Joseph is a man who has remained faithful to God. He's trusted God no matter what kind of trials, no matter what kind of temptations, no matter what type of triumphs he experiences in his life, he continued to walk with and trust the Lord. But I also told you that in the story of Joseph, you know, as amazing as it is, that the story of Joseph is not primarily a story about Joseph, is it? The story of Joseph is primarily, like the rest of our stories, mine, yours, the story is primarily about the sovereign God of the universe, right? The story of Joseph gives us this bird's eye view of the way that God is working in and through the circumstances of Joseph's life to accomplish something much bigger than even Joseph. And that gives us hope because... As I prayed before, it means that God is also working in our lives, and he's accomplishing, accomplishing something much bigger than even our stories as well. Now, last week, we read about the final hours of Jacob's life. Jacob was Joseph's father, and Joseph and the rest of his brothers, they were gathered around their father's bed as he was dying. And his dad, he spoke some prophetic and, and poetic words, words of blessing over each of his sons. And after pronouncing a blessing over them, he conveyed his dying wish. His dying wish for his sons was to take him back to the land of Canaan, back to the land that had been promised to his grandfather Abraham, his father Isaac had been promised to him. He said, I want to go back to Canaan when I die, bury me there. And he made his sons promise to do so. And they did. And at the end of chapter 49, in verse 33, we read, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. 
147 years old, Jacob had now completed his journey on the earth. And as we turn now to Genesis chapter 50, as we, as we arrive at verse 1 today, Joseph and his brothers are all still gathered around their father's bed. He has just breathed his last. He's just died. So let's begin in Genesis, uh, reading in Genesis chapter 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. You can, you can feel the emotions in the room. Maybe you've been there uh, in that last moment for somebody that you loved and just the overwhelming emotions of, of maybe sometimes it's regrets. I mean, I think for Joseph, maybe regrets they had lost 22 years, right? 22 years while Joseph was in Egypt, Jacob was back in Canaan believing that his son was dead. They missed out on so much time together. Thankfully, they had the last 17 years together down in Egypt. But they're gathered around, and, and Joseph is, is overcome with emotions as his father passes. We know from what we've read in this story so far, we know that, we know that Jacob loved Joseph, right? I mean, Joseph was his favorite. But what we see in these passages is that Joseph loved his father, Jacob, as well. He loved him, and he's grieving now that dad is gone. And I think it's important that we at least pause for a moment to recognize the role that grief plays in our lives, right? I think it's important that we give one another and give ourselves permission to grieve. Aren't you glad that Joseph doesn't just say, well, toughen up, you know, move on, right? No, Joseph grieves, and he's not, he's not trying to hide it. He's openly, and he's grieving excessively, right? falling on his father, weeping and, and crying. You know, it is true for believers what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. He says that we don't grieve in the same way as those who have no hope, right? When somebody who knows Christ passes, we don't grieve in the same way as someone who has no hope because we know, we know, we don't hope, we know that they're with Christ, in heaven. That's a good thing. But Paul doesn't say we don't grieve. He says we don't grieve like those who have no hope, right? We still grieve. And I think it's really important to give yourself space to do that. In fact, I think it's really unhealthy if you don't. Joseph grieved the death of his father. Verse 2, we read, and Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel and Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. Now, as we talked about it the last couple of weeks, and as I mentioned this morning already, Jacob's dying wish was to be transported back to Canaan, right? But Canaan is 250 miles away, roughly, that's a long ways to bring a dead body. Agreed? It's a long ways. And so Joseph tells his physicians to embalm his father's body in preparation for this journey. Now, it is worth noting that he asks the physicians to do it. He asks his servants, his physicians, to prepare his dad's body by embalming. And the reason why that's interesting is because that was a job that was typically in Egypt would have been fulfilled by the priests. It was a job that the priests would do, and it had all kinds of religious aspects to it because the Egyptians believed in a physical resurrection. And so they would go through all these elaborate plans for embalming to prepare the body for a one-day resurrection. They were right. There is going to be a resurrection. They didn't have all the right beliefs, but they were right about that, that there will be a resurrection. And so Joseph here, instead of having the priests perform these religious duties to embalm his father's body, he asked his physicians to do it. This would bypass all of the religious aspects of the embalming. You know, when it came to embalming, the Egyptians were the, they were the pioneers. I was talking to somebody this week, and they're like, I can't even believe they did embalming that long ago. It is shocking, actually, when you study ancient Egypt, just how incredibly smart uh, the Egyptians were. I mean, in the study of mathematics, if you look into the, the, the history of mathematics, 
the Egyptians did so much to advance uh, what we uh, use for modern-day mathematics. But uh, the embalming process was pretty incredible. It's a little different than the way we do it today. Um, you want me to go into the details? That's good, because I'm not going to. <laughs> because, and it's not because I'm afraid to, to, to make you uncomfortable. It's I'm afraid to make myself uncomfortable. <laughs> so it is, um, I have a very weak stomach. My family would tell you, I can't, I like drawing blood or just needles. I'm like, nope. It just, it's not for me. Uh, there is no chance of me ever working in a hospital. Um, but the process was, it was, it was gruesome. Um, and it would, as you can imagine, it would be. But it was also a lengthy process, you know, to, to go through the process of embalming in ancient Egypt. And 40 days, it says, to complete the process, and others say up to, you know, 70 days for the total, to be totally done. And when the process was totally complete, they would then take the embalmed body and they would put it into a sarcophagus, right? A, a coffin. And they would put it in the coffin, and then if it was like a pharaoh or somebody, they'd be put into a tomb that would have been prepared. In, uh, in Jacob's case, the sarcophagus was then given to the family so they could bring him to Canaan. So what's interesting, though, ab about this whole description of what's happening here is that this is something that royalty and the wealthy would experience. It, it's not inexpensive. I mean, you, you got a process that takes 40 to 70 days to prepare a body. This is not something that every person experienced in Egypt. It was something relegated for the wealthy and, and for the royalty. And so Jacob, this, this Hebrew from Canaan, is getting a royal treatment in Egypt. And something else that's really interesting about this whole thing is that some historians uh, have said that if a pharaoh died, if a pharaoh died, there was a mandatory 72 days for grieving. 72 days they would grieve the loss of, this, of the king. Jacob gets how many days? 70. Just two days short of a pharaoh, Jacob is grieved, not just by Joseph and his brothers, mandatory grieving in Egypt for Joseph's father. It just goes to show you how, how amazingly respected and honored Joseph was in Egypt, right? It's pretty amazing stuff. By the way, I think when Moses and Aaron die, I believe it's 30 days. So Moses and Aaron are gonna be grieved for 30 days. Jacob is grieved for 70. Verse four, when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Now, for me, anyway, it comes as a little bit of a surprise here. There's a little bit of a surprise here that Joseph is sending this request to Pharaoh through a servant. He says, would you please bring this message to Pharaoh? Why doesn't Joseph just bring the message directly himself, right? I mean, you remember in Genesis chapter 45 when Joseph said that I am a father to Pharaoh. Joseph was one of Pharaoh's trusted advisors, somebody that he was the second in command over all of Egypt, and now he's got this request from Pharaoh, and he doesn't go directly to Pharaoh himself. And the reason for that is likely because Joseph was in a period of mourning. And when you're in a period of mourning in ancient cultures, you don't go into the presence of the king when you are in mourning. So likely, Joseph, as a sign of respect for who Pharaoh is, he sends the request to Pharaoh. By the way, have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered why Joseph, because this, this bothered me for a long time when, I, when I'd read the story of Joseph. Why didn't Joseph, after he was released from prison and he became the second in command over all of Egypt, so like, like, this is like the vice president, right? 
Why doesn't he leave Egypt for a period and go check on his father back in Canaan? Does that ever bother anybody else here in the room? Have you ever had that question? Okay, it, it bothered me. Um, I mean, not to the point where I was going to throw out my Bible or anything, but, but it was just like, I don't understand. I don't understand. Why doesn't Joseph, if he really loves his dad, why didn't he go check on dad? Didn't make sense to me. Well, I think that this passage actually helps to answer that question a, a little bit. Because not only was Joseph incredibly busy, I mean, Joseph was the prime minister of Egypt, right? And he is leading Egypt through seven years of, of great wealth and, and great crops and distributing and setting up storage houses all around the country. He's got a lot to do. Then he was responsible for seven years of famine to oversee the distribution of all those resources to hungry and starving people from Egypt and all over the known world at that time. Think he's a busy guy? Incredibly busy. So like, oh, you know, I'm going to take a vacation and go off to Canaan. I don't think so, right? But more than that, more than that, I think what this passage shows me is that Joseph may still, he, he might be the second most powerful man of all of Egypt, but he is still a servant of Pharaoh, isn't he? Pharaoh says, oh, you're second command. Nobody does anything without your permission, Joseph, but you don't do anything without mine either, right? And so Joseph actually, at the end of this passage, he, uh, at the end of that verse says, I will return. You know, maybe Pharaoh is actually concerned that Joseph might go back to Canaan and never return. And, and how would you feel about that if, if you had a guy like Joseph managing your country? You don't want to lose this guy, right? So I think that's kind of interesting. Verse 6, and Pharaoh answered and he said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. Pharaoh, not only, not only does he give uh, Joseph permission to go, but he sends a, a, a royal delegation with Joseph. Can you imagine what this funeral procession must have looked like? I mean, can you imagine? We, we talked about the procession of Egypt when, when Jacob and the family were moving down to Egypt, right? And it was big. This was bigger. This was bigger. I mean, this is a big, big deal. Joseph's family has grown, and, and the whole family is going to go up, but not just the family, right? He, he's sending, Pharaoh is sending servants, he's sending the elders of his household, and he's sending all the elders of the land of Egypt. These are, these are royal, these are dignitaries, right? This is a huge delegation that is leaving Egypt and bringing the bones, the sarcophagus of this this father of Joseph back up to the land of Canaan. And on top of all that, it says that, it says that he sent chariots with horsemen. There's a military presence about this whole procession. This is, a, this is huge. I, I mean, I can't even imagine seeing something quite, quite like that. Can you imagine the, the local villages as they're coming through? Can you just imagine what that must have looked like to people? I mean, when you see the, the, the Egyptian military present, you had to be at least a little nervous, right? This is huge. Well, verse 10 says, when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he, this is Joseph, made a mourning for his father seven days. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mitzrayim. It is beyond the Jordan. So I want you to picture you know, this scene. These Canaanites, right? They're just doing what they do. You know, it's just a normal, some probably farming people. Uh, they're there near the threshing floor. You guys know what a threshing floor is? It's, the, it's a place, it's a large, flat area, uh, usually up on a hill where there would be some wind. 
And it was a place where they would gather to, to beat their crops. They would take the stalks, they would cut them, they would put them down, and then either hand by hand or with oxen or other animals, they would trample and beat the stalks in order to separate the grain from the chaff, right? And then they would take like winnowing forks and they would take it and they would throw it into the air and the breeze would blow away the chaff and leave the grain there on the floor. That's a threshing floor. So these are farming type people. You know, they're just hanging out. They're just doing what they normally do. And all of a sudden, this huge entourage shows up and they stop at the threshing floor of a tad. And there's this huge thing. And all of a sudden, they're, they're moving across the land. And then all of a sudden, it just stops. Boom. They gather at this threshing floor. The movement stops and the mourning begins, right? They start weeping. And it's not like just a few like, oh, there's some gentle tears going on over here and somebody bring him a Kleenex, you know. This is like, this is full on mourning, like wailing and crying and you probably, people maybe tearing their clothes in grief, right? This is like a big commotion. And the Canaanites are just watching this whole thing like, what in the world is going on? I don't know who died, but it's somebody really important because... This is crazy. Seven days they mourned there. They've already mourned for 70 days back in Egypt. Let's just add another seven here now that we've come into the land of Canaan. And so for seven days, there was this, this very great and grievous lamentation. And uh, it's so bizarre. It's so strange to the local Canaanites. It's such a shocking event that they actually renamed the location uh, of this threshing floor. They renamed this place Abel Mitzrayim, which appears to be a little bit of a play on words going on here because the word Abel, Abel, means meadow, okay? So, and, and Mitzrayim is, is, is Egypt, so the meadow of Egypt or Egypt's meadow. But the word Abel is very close to the word Abel, Abel, Abel. Say that five times fast. Abel, Abel. Abel means meadow. Abel means morning, morning. And so if you read this verse, what, what it says here is when the Canaanites saw the Abel, the morning, on the threshing floor, they said, this is a grievous Abel by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mitzrayim. Do you see it? A little bit of a play on words there. They renamed this place the Meadow of Egypt or the Morning of Egypt. It was such a, a crazy sight for them. Verse 12 says, Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. So when the seven days of mourning were over, Joseph and his brothers, it appears that just them, it doesn't, looks like the rest of the entourage stayed there on the threshing floor while Joseph and his brothers finished the journey and brought their father to Hebron, okay? They bring him there and they lay his body in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, just as Jacob had requested. This is the same cave that Abraham and, and his wife Sarah were buried in. It's where Isaac and Rebekah were buried, and it's where Leah, Jacob's first wife, was buried as well. Yeah, in the picture there, you can see that is, uh, that is in Hebron today. That's the, that building was constructed, I believe, by Herod the Great, and inside this structure are the traditional caves uh, and the burying places of the patriarchs. Uh, you can visit there today. So one more, one more thing I want to point out. Uh, before, we, before we continue, is that as Joseph and his brothers arrive here in Hebron to bury their father, I want you to keep in mind that this is the first time that Joseph has been back to Hebron, probably for somewhere around 40 years. Joseph was 17 years old when he was last in Hebron. You remember the story, right? He's there with his father in Hebron. His brothers are off tending sheep up north near Shechem. And dad says, I want you to go check on your brothers. 
And so Joseph leaves Hebron and goes to check on his brothers, and Joseph never returned to Hebron, right? And so for 40 years, Jake, Joseph has been you know, down, in, down in Egypt. You know what it's like when you return home after three or four years, right? You pull in and you see certain sights. You see that tree that you have childhood memories climbing, and you see things that, that you remember from your childhood. Can you imagine all that Joseph must have been feeling as he's returning to his, this is the place where he grew up. Joseph is coming home, and what does he remember? This is the place where I was hated, hated by the guys who are now standing next to me carrying my father's coffin. They hated me so much, they sold me away as a slave. Can you imagine just all that Joseph might have been feeling in that moment as he returned home for the first time? Well, he doesn't stay there long. Verse 14 says, after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Joseph and his brothers, they fulfilled their father's dying request, and now Joseph is fulfilling his promise that he made to Pharaoh. He's returning back to Egypt. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Apparently, you know, coming back into the land of Hebron caused them to remember some things too. Verse 16, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. They send him this message. They said, oh, by the way, Joseph, I know that when dad was dying, I mean, he shared a lot. You guys remember last week? I mean, all those blessings and the poetry, and he shared all that. Something he forgot to tell you that he told us is that he wants you to forgive us. Joseph, the favorite son, dad forgot to tell him this piece, right? You think dad really said that? No, no. Keep in mind, it's been 17 years. Okay, 17 years since Joseph revealed his true identity to his brothers, right? 17 years since Joseph extended mercy and extended grace. He extended forgiveness to these brothers of his. 17 years since Joseph made the arrangements to have not only his father, but all of his brothers and their families moved down to Egypt where he could do what? Where he could provide for them. For 17 years, he has loved on and served and protected and taken care of his brothers. Can you imagine how that must have felt to Joseph to now, in this moment? After 17 years of faithfulness, they're, they're afraid that he's gonna hurt them. Now that their father has died, they're they're afraid that Joseph is going to change his mind. They're worried that the only reason that Joseph was kind to them was because he loved his dad, right? Verse 17 says that when he heard this message, Joseph wept. He wept. I believe that Joseph's heart is broken for his brothers. How sad, right? How sad that after 17 years, they are still carrying the guilt and the shame for all that they had done. How sad is that? Even though Joseph had shown them grace, he had shown them mercy, he had shown them forgiveness, they still wrestled with the lying whispers of the enemy, constantly reminding them of what they had done and causing them to be insecure in their relationship with Joseph. Do you think the enemy still does that? Brothers and sisters, the enemy of your soul, Satan, still whispers those same lies, those same lies. 
In the book of Revelation, chapter 12, Satan is referred to as the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night. You know, Satan wants to remind you of all of your failures, doesn't he? He wants to remind you that you are not worthy of the grace, the mercy, and the forgiveness that God has given to you. Are you? No, of course not. None of us are worthy. He wants you to question whether it's real. He wants to remind you of all of your failures. He wants you to be insecure in your relationship with Jesus because if he can render you insecure, he will make you ineffective. If you're insecure in your relationship with Jesus, you're going to be completely ineffective in helping to bring the hope of the gospel to those who don't already have it, right? Because you don't believe it yourself, which is why you need to know with confidence, you need to know with confidence that when Jesus said, I've forgiven you, I have given you grace, I've given you mercy, I've given you forgiveness, he meant it. He meant it. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God does not lie. God does not lie. That same passage in Revelation tells us that Satan's an accuser of the brethren, but he's also a defeated foe. And he is going to be permanently defeated one day. It's been well said, and I know you've probably heard it, but you should know it. And if you don't know it, know it now. Next time that Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Right? Right. Because my sins are forgiven. I'm free. I'm a new creation. And everything that I did, oh, it did. It, it warranted me being totally separated from God, but by God's grace and mercy, I have been redeemed. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been too. If you have time this week, uh, this week, Read Psalm 103, just a beautiful psalm. Read it. I don't have time to read it this morning in its entirety, but go ahead and read that on your own. Verse 18, his brothers also came and they fell down before him and they said, behold, we are your servants. And Joseph's brothers, they are so genuinely afraid, you know, that they come in and they bow down before him. And once again, we see Joseph's dreams being fulfilled. How many times are these guys going to bow before their brother Joseph, right? They're bowing before him. They're pleading with him for mercy. But these next few verses, wow. Look at what Joseph says next. Verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. These, these verses right here are such an incredible gift. A, a gift to his brothers for sure, but they're a gift to us as well because these verses, I believe, really help us to understand what it was about Joseph that made him such a remarkable man of God. This is you want to, the secret to Joseph's success is right here in these verses. You know, as we've made our way through this series, we've seen how Joseph trusted God, right? He trusted him through all those different circumstances. He, he faced trials of a magnitude that you and I, we can't even comprehend. He resisted temptation where so many others would have failed, right? And when he experienced blessings, you know, like getting promoted to the second command of all of Egypt, he remained humble, and he used his position as, a, as an opportunity to be a blessing to those around him. Joseph is a remarkable man of God. But here in these verses, I believe we're given the insight into what it was that made him so special. First thing that we see is that Joseph did not allow bitterness and the desire for revenge to take root in his heart. He didn't. Look at what he says in verse 19. He says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Joseph understood the biblical principle that vengeance belongs to God, right? 
Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. It doesn't belong to us. And you and I both know, and if you're carrying bitterness and resentment and vengeance in your heart, you know who's being destroyed by it, don't you? Who's being destroyed? You are. You are. Joseph understood that. Far too many Christians who have been recipients of God's grace, recipients of God's mercy, recipients of God's forgiveness are still carrying around the desire to get revenge on those who have hurt them. And Joseph didn't do that. Joseph didn't do that. And if that's you, if that's you, if that's where you find yourself today, I'm telling you, you need to do yourself a huge favor. Seriously. For your own health, for your own benefit, you need to give that to God. You need to surrender over the desire for revenge and give it to God and say, God, you do what you need to do. I'm done. I'm done. It's going to be a blessing not only for you, but it's going to be a blessing for the people around you too. Trust me. Vengeance belongs to God. But maybe that's hard, right? It sounds easy. Oh, so that's so simple, Chris. Just give it to God, you know? You don't know what they did to me. Right. I don't. I know what Joseph's brothers did to him. And if Joseph can do it, so can you. And so can I. But maybe if you're struggling to do that, maybe you're struggling to put that into practice. I, it's just really hard for me. Then maybe focusing on this next thing will help you. Because I believe that the reason why Joseph was able to have a biblical view on, on vengeance is because Joseph had a biblical view of God's sovereignty. The only reason he was able to do what he did with not holding a grudge is because he really believed in the sovereign control of God. Verse 20 says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good. He says that, that what his brothers did was evil. Don't miss that. Joseph isn't saying, hey, it's okay. It's no big deal. No, it was evil. It was evil. And actually, he even says more than that. He says, you meant it for evil. It was intentional. You were actually trying to do something very evil. But God meant it for good. Did God make them do it? I don't believe so. I don't believe so. And you know, we could get into a whole long discussion, you know, going into Calvinism and Arminianism and free will. And listen, listen, they did evil. God is not the author of evil, okay? He's not. They, had, they made a choice. It was the wrong choice. They did the wrong thing, and God turned around, and he used it for good. He did. I believe that. Joseph believed that. God was the one who was in control of his life. God took this evil decision of what his brothers did, and he used it for good. God was sovereign. As one author has put it, the fact that God is sovereign means this. He has the power, the wisdom, and the authority to do anything he chooses within his creation, anything at all. He can do anything he chooses, and he often chooses to allow certain things for reasons of his own. He allows things to happen for reasons of his own, and we don't always understand it, do we? And if, if you can't live with that tension, you're going to be consumed with, with anxiety the rest of your life. You will not get all the answers to all the pain in the world this side of eternity. You don't see it. But Joseph believed it, and I believe you can believe it too, that God is in control. He is working on something so much bigger than you could possibly even imagine. And every single detail of your life is, is being woven together to make this thing happen. It's amazing. It's amazing. Joseph says that God allowed this evil to be carried out by his brothers, and God meant it for good. In order to, he says, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph says, I... You guys are worried that I'm going to seek revenge. Are you kidding me? Look around, guys. Look around. Look at what God has done. Do you see how much I've been blessed? Do you not see how much you've been blessed because of this? Do you not see how God used what you did to save the country of Egypt and Canaan? And wow, are you kidding me? Revenge? No, God is so good. Wow. 
One of the things I just love most about this whole story of Joseph is the way that we can, you know, in his life anyway, we can zoom out and see the whole picture. Isn't that great? I wish we could do it in our own lives, right? You know, if you could just see how the pain that you're currently walking through is going to be used by God, that'd be awesome. Well, you can't necessarily. You might not. You might not know for the rest of your life. But at least in Joseph's life, we can step back and say, oh, God does use even the pain that we walk through for good and for his glory. You know, we can see the way that God was working in and through the circumstances of Joseph's life to accomplish a greater purpose, right? Think about it for a second. Joseph's brothers sold him as a slave. They sold him a bad thing to do. They sold him as a slave. And because Joseph was sold as a slave, Joseph became a slave in the house of Potiphar. And because Joseph became a slave in the house of Potiphar, Joseph became the target of Potiphar's wife, right? And because Joseph became the the target of Potiphar's wife, Joseph is wrongly accused and thrown in prison. But because Joseph was wrongly accused and thrown in prison, Joseph met the baker and the cupbearer for Pharaoh. Wow. And because Joseph met the baker and the cupbearer for Pharaoh, Joseph had the opportunity to interpret the dreams that troubled them. And because Joseph interpreted the dreams that troubled the baker and the cupbearer, Joseph was given the opportunity to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. Whoa. And because Joseph got to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh, Joseph got promoted to be the second in command over all of Egypt. And because Joseph became the second in command over all of Egypt, God used him to lead that country through a devastating famine, right? And because God used Joseph to lead that country through a devastating famine, Joseph got to meet his brothers again when they came down to Egypt to buy grain. And because he got to meet his brothers again when they came down to buy grain, he was given the opportunity to test them to see if they had truly changed. And because he was able to test them to see if they had truly changed, he was able to see that they had. And he was able to be reunited with his family, reconciled, experience forgiveness and reconciliation in those relationships. And because he was able to experience reconciliation and forgiveness in his relationships with his brothers... He was able to move his father and that whole family down to Egypt where he could provide for them, right? And because he was able to move that family out of Canaan and down to Egypt, the family of Jacob, the family of Israel was saved not only from a famine that would have killed them, they were saved from a culture in Canaan that they were being totally assimilated into. Just go back and read the story of Judah. God used the circumstances of Joseph's life to bring that family down to Egypt where he could grow them from a family into a nation, nation millions strong that a few hundred years later is going to leave Egypt, go back up into the Canaan, the land of promise, where God is going to bring forth a savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is the son of, uh, of Judah. He is from the, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David. Joseph's brothers meant it for evil. But man, can't you see that God meant it for good? It's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. What was the secret to Joseph's success? Joseph had a biblical understanding of God's sovereignty. He knew that God is always in control. You know, if the book of Romans had been written at the time of Joseph, Joseph's life verse would have been Romans 8, 28. (laughs) And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Joseph believed that truth, right? And he lived that truth. Brothers and sisters, it is just as true for Joseph as it is for you and I. Same, same deal. We may not always see the way that God is working, but you can believe and live with total confidence that he is in control and he is working. One more thing. 
before we wrap this series up. From the beginning of the series, I've talked about the many ways that Joseph was a foreshadow of Jesus. You see, like Joseph, Jesus, well, or like Jesus, Joseph, he was the beloved son of his father, right? He, he was hated by his own. The Jews hated Jesus when he came, right? He was sold for a few pieces of silver. He was delivered over to Gentiles. He remained faithful when he was tempted. He was falsely accused and arrested. He was exalted through his humiliation. People bowed before him, and he provided deliverance for all who came to him, both, both his family, the Jews, and Gentiles. And God took the evil, the evil that was carried out against him, and he used it for good. He used it to provide salvation for many. You know, in Joseph's case, the, the salvation was salvation through a physical need. He provided food to keep them alive. In the case of Jesus, he provided salvation to meet a spiritual need. A hunger that you cannot fill in any other way than a relationship with Jesus. And he, Joseph's salvation was temporary, right? You receive the salvation that comes from Jesus, it's for all eternity. And I don't know if, if you know this or not, but if you've never received Jesus, the gospel is good news. It's, the, the word gospel means good news. It's good news because it doesn't require you to go out and fix up your life to receive it. What it requires is you to acknowledge that you are a sinner and you are in need of a Savior. And if you're willing to accept the fact that you're a sinner and you're in need of a Savior, the good news of the gospel is that you can receive Jesus Christ who will permanently forgive you of your sins. They're gone. He will wipe the debt clean. And you'll receive eternal life that begins now for all eternity, you'll be in the presence of Jesus. That's an amazing gift. That's why it's called good news. And I'm just gonna say this. After the service today, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've never come to him and asked him to forgive you of your sins, to receive him as your Lord and your Savior, would you please talk with me? Talk with somebody in this room that you know is a believer, somebody who's a Christian here, who's already experienced that, and ask them how you can receive God's forgiveness today. Did you do that? Verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, not quite as long as dad. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. Lots of grandbabies for Joseph. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you will carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, between verses 21 and 22, there's a, there's a big time jump, right? I mean, basically, jo Jacob dies, his sons bury him, they come back to Egypt, and then we jump forward to the point where Joseph is now 110 years old. And like his father, on his deathbed, he is reminding his family of God's promise to bring them back to the land of Canaan. He's going to do it. God is going to bring you back to the land of Canaan. He said, and I'm about to die, but God will visit you, bring you back up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And like his father, Joseph, Joseph, as an act of faith, as an act of faith, he made his family promise to bring my body back to Canaan with you. Oh, you're going back to Canaan. And when you go, bring me back with you. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22 says that by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus 
of the Israelites, and he gave directions concerning his bones. It was an act of faith. Text says that like his father, Joseph was then embalmed. By the way, the, in the scriptures for the Jewish people, only two people mentioned as being embalmed. It was, it was Jacob and Joseph. And then he was put in a coffin in Egypt. But unlike his father, Joseph is going to have to wait quite a while before his body gets brought back to Canaan. It's going to be hundreds of years before Joseph makes the return, uh, the return trip to Canaan. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 19, hundreds of years later, we're told that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they did. And he was brought back and he was buried in, I think we talked about this a few weeks ago, he was buried in Shechem, which is modern day Nablus. Well, that is the life of Joseph. What a journey. We'll start back at Genesis 37 again next week. <laughs> no, we could. And you know what's so cool about the Bible? You could go back through it again next week, and God would show you something new that you didn't see this time. God's Word is amazing like that. But the life of Joseph, it's a story of one man who played a part in God's plan to bring salvation to all mankind. Joseph had a part to play. He had a role to play, and he played it well. He did what God called him to do. And so do, you, so do you and I, right? We do too. We have a role to play in God's plan to bring salvation to all mankind. The sovereign God of the universe is working in and through the details of our lives. All the trials, all the temptations, all the triumphs, every blessing and every challenge that you walk through, God is using to accomplish his purposes and his will in our lives. Like Joseph, God is working in and through us to help build his kingdom. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing gift your word is. I'm so grateful that I can look at Joseph's life and, and, and we can see the way that you were using all of it, every detail, to bring salvation. Salvation, you know, in the immediate story for, for the Jewish people and for the people of the land, the Gentiles as well. But ultimately, it was part of a much bigger story, the story of your plan of redemption that you were bringing a Savior to this world, a Savior that would come through the line of Jacob through Judah, a Savior who would die on a cross in the place of every one of us, paying the price for our sins. And through his sacrifice, through his death, and through his resurrection, we are able to experience forgiveness. We're able to be reconciled to you. And we're able to receive eternal life through him. And so God, I do pray, if there's anyone here today that has never put their faith in you and they're ready to make that decision, God, I pray that today they would step forward by faith and call out to you to be their savior. I pray this in the, the matchless and powerful name of your son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.